0: Let's pray together. Our God, we come to you because we are so needy and in need of help even now. Help that by your Holy Spirit, the words that come from my mouth might not be my words or from my righteousness, but I stand on Christ and they would be faithful to you. Help for your people's ears so that they would hear it and their eyes so that they would see it and their minds so that they would understand it and their hearts that they would believe it and receive it. And their lives so that they would obey it, so that we would not just have heard your word, but actually have it apply to us, transform us, change us, and give us life. We also remember, Lord, that you have told us that you have shown to us the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Show us and remind us, as we hear all that we'll hear today, that there is joy and, and life in you lest we be overwhelmed by even what you have to say to us this morning. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1914, a man named Ernest Shackleton set out to be the first man to lead an expedition across Antarctica. He had already been the first man to set a record for going furthest south in the world, and so he had already led a team to within 97 miles of the South Pole. And being on Shackleton's team, a part of his voyage and expeditions, was putting yourself in the gravest of risk and of the worst danger. For example, in one of his expeditions, his ship got stuck into a piece of ice, drifting ice, that moved in over and over again until it crushed the ship. Just enough time for his crip crew to get off the ship camp on a piece of ice that was drifting in sea until it melted away, and then get on a lifeboat and sail some 720 miles to an island where they survived. So needless to say, to be a part of Shackleton's voyage, to be on his crew, was danger of the worst kind. And so now, in 1914, he was going to lead an expedition across the cold continent of Antarctica. And so he puts out an ad because he needs to gather a crew. Now I I wonder, what would you have put on that ad, right? What, What words would you have chosen? What message would you have tried to communicate? What picture would you have tried to paint? Listen to what Shackleton wrote. He said, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. (laughs) Yeah, you like that, right? Basically, he's saying, uh, this is going to be hard. It's going to cost you. You might die. Want to come? Right? Now, I think Jesus would have liked Ernest Shackleton because when I read the Gospels and you read the Gospels, you often find that the way Jesus seems to recruit disciples matches this. For example, this one time a man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus doesn't do what a good recruiter does. He doesn't wine and dine him. He doesn't show him a good time. In fact, he turns to him and he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Meaning, I'm doing this work, and I don't have a place to call home. I don't have a spot of my own. And the implication is, if you follow me, that may be your story as well. Want to come? Still interested? Or another time, there's this mass of people around Jesus, a perfect recruiting opportunity, just people all around him, swarming everywhere. And because he sees the crowds, the gospel says, that he turns to them and he tells them all, Unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. Translation, unless every other relationship in your life is so far second that it's tantamount to hate compared to your loyalty to me, you can't be my disciple. And he goes on to tell the story of a man went out to build, but he didn't count the cost. You don't want to get halfway in and realize you didn't have what it took and leave. So are you sure you're interested? You still want to come and follow me. Or in John's gospel. The crowds, and not, not a few dozen, not a few hundred, thousands of people are around Jesus. So if you want to get this movement going, here's the opportunity. Thousands of people around Jesus. And what should Jesus do? He should bust out his best sermon. Maybe grab the one about the lost son. Who doesn't like that one, Right? The one where the boy wastes his money on wine and women, and he's in rags, and he comes home, and the father welcomes him with riches. Everybody loves that story. Instead, John tells us, Jesus said to that crowd, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part in me. Now I don't know about you, but I can almost picture one of the disciples in the back going, ixnay on the cannibal sermon, eh, please, right? <laughs> Yet that's what Jesus does. And it's the same thing here in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, he's speaking to his crowds, and the crowds are listening, and his disciples have come, right? That's how Matthew 5 started, seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he's talking to his disciples, and he knows the crowds are listening, and he's given this whole speech about, here's my kingdom, and here's what it means to live life as a citizen of my kingdom. And then you heard what Amy led us through. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and many enter by it. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." Do you hear him him say it? This is hard, and it's narrow. You want to come? Are you still interested? You see, what we're doing here is we're coming to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been working through this thing for months now. And what we've arrived at in preaching terms is Jesus is getting ready to land the plane, right? In preaching terms, you've got a takeoff, right? That's the introduction. And you heard the takeoff, the wonderful Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we heard the sermon take off. And we've been with Jesus on the flight of this sermon, too. We heard him teach through the body of the sermon, that rich material as he addressed one practical issue of life after another, as he talked about murder and adultery and marriage and taking oaths and retaliation and judging people and and, and prayer like we heard Brett preach last week. We heard the rich body of the sermon. Well, now Jesus is ready to land the plane. He's ready to give you the conclusion. And Jesus is a master preacher. So this is not going to be a crash landing where he just says, that's all I had to say. And he drops the mic and walks off. He, he is going to work this thing out. He's going to land this plane well. And so you begin to see that he's going to do what any great sermon does, which is as it comes to a close, it's going to bring his hearers to a choice. Any great sermon is not just going to inform you, but call you to be transformed because of the hearing of that sermon. And so he, a great master preacher, is going to say to you, what are you going to do now? You've heard my sermon, now what are you going to choose? In fact, I want you to know that's the tradition of all the great men of the Bible. When Moses, the leader of Israel, is getting ready to die in Deuteronomy, he gathers the hundreds and thousands of people of Israel before them, and he says to them, See, I have set before you life and death, good and evil, blessing and curse. Now choose. In the audience of Moses' sermon would have been a man named Joshua, who would then succeed Moses. And when Joshua comes to die, guess what he does? He gathers all Israel around him, and he says, "Listen, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers in the the land beyond the rivers or the Lord himself. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." In that same way, Jesus here is ready to land the plane and he's going to say to all his hearers, "You've heard me preach. Now make a choice." And he's going to pull you and push you to make one of two choices. In fact, in the coming weeks, you're going to hear this over and over again. He's going to say next week, there's two types of trees. Some that bear good fruit and some that bear bad fruit. The week after, you're going to hear him say, there's two types of followers. There's those whom I'm going to say, I never knew you, depart from me. And those who I'm going to say, come and inherit the kingdom of the saints. There's two types of foundations. There's those who build their lives on the sand and are washed away. There's those who build their lives on the rock and stand. What Jesus is going to do, said Marod, from this week out, is force you to now choose, to, to decide what are you going to do with the Sermon on the Mount. And this week, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So he's saying to you, you've got a choice to make, Seven Mile Road, and he's essentially saying, look, there's two gates that lead to two roads that are traveled by two groups of people that lead you to two different destinations. That's what he's saying. There's a wide gate and the road there is easy and there are many people who travel down that path. So I want you to picture the turnpike with no traffic. Right? Broad lanes. You could fit thousands deep, plenty wide, easy travel, plenty of light to light the way, stores and shops and gas stations and exits all along. You can bring a U-Haul, you could drive a 18-wheeler. You don't have to leave anything behind. All your stuff can come with you. Easy, perfect, broad path. There's another path, which is the exact opposite. Listen to this one commentator named John Stott. He says this, There is plenty of room, speaking of the broad path, for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals, It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. There is no limit to the luggage we can take with us. We need leave nothing behind, not even our sins, self-righteousness, or pride. The hard way, on the other hand, is narrow. In order to enter it, we must leave everything behind, sin, selfish ambition, covetousness, even if necessary, family and friends, for no one can follow Christ who has not first denied himself. Right? There's a broad way where you can believe what you want. You can live how you want. You can take with you what you want. There's no limitations. There's room for all. The only rule on the road is that there's no rules. Whatever goes, and it's easy, and it's wide, and many go that way. And then there's a narrow path. And, and the narrow path is more like a turnstile where you can't even go with anyone with you. You can't carry someone with you. You have to go in one at a time, right? You can't attach on to, but I went to this church and go. You can't bring your kids with you. You can't carry anyone with you. There's many things to leave behind. It narrows you in what you are allowed to believe, narrows you in what you're allowed to do, constricts and restrains, and it's hard, and it's narrow. And Jesus says, choose. Choose. Now, wrote, what, what is Jesus talking about? What are these two ways and gates and paths? Well, I think that what Jesus is talking about is what Jesus has been talking about. Right? Now, I'm not trying to give you a riddle. I'm saying Jesus is talking about what he's been talking about. Meaning, every good preacher knows when you're landing the plane, you don't take off again with new material. You land the plane, meaning you, you remind them what you have said in your sermon. And so what Jesus is talking about is what he has been talking about. Remember, Jesus started this sermon by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And remember, the kingdom of God is not a place you go to. It's the rule of God. And so the throne of God, the rule of God, the reign of Jesus has broken into the world, broken into your life. And Jesus is saying, here's what it looks like for you to come under the rule and reign of Jesus. Here's what it looks like for you to live under the throne of Jesus. Here's what it looks like for the kingdom of God to break into your life, into our community. And so Jesus is saying, you've been listening to my sermon. Now tell me, here's what it looks like for your life to be lived under my rule and reign, to let me be king in your life. And if you've heard my sermon, Jesus, as he's concluding, is saying, then what you've already known is the life I'm calling you to is hard. The life I'm calling you to is narrow. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, just think through the sermon with me. Just remember how the sermon starts. The first line, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? The, The sermon starts with, you know who's blessed? It's those who admit that spiritually they don't have it all together. It's the spiritually needy people who are blessed. Just don't gloss over that. Hear that for a second. This week, I was talking to someone who was telling me, you know how hard it is to be the needy person? right? Nobody wants to be in a relationship and be the needy one. right? The worst thing you could be is the needy girlfriend or the needy boyfriend. Just hearing the term, you go, that's not what I want to be. right? So we know how hard it is to be needy. Or just think about how hard you work to project yourself as someone who's got it all together. How much energy do you and I expend to put on a show where no one sees what a mess we are? How hard do we work to not let anyone know we're falling apart? We can't hold this thing together. We can't seem to handle life. And yet you, you and I work so hard to project an image that's anything but needy, anything but poor in spirit. Right? Think, think, I, I often think about, you know, there's sort of a Facebook you and the real you, Right? Who am I on Facebook? On Facebook, I am witty and funny and interesting. Everything I put up should be liked by everybody. I should have hundreds of friends, right? That, that's the faith. In fact, even down to the pictures we post on Facebook. I don't put up real pictures. I put up Cyril Matthew, Shibu Daniel photography pictures, right? Where everything's been edited perfectly and the light flows perfect and I look perfect. That's, that's Facebook, right? So, I, for example, I, I put up a picture. There's Facebook Ajay. <laughs> that brother is hot to death. That brother, <laughs> that brother, you would want to be friends with that brother. That, that is a guy whose life has you know, is working right. And then I found a random picture of real Ajay. <laughs> but why is he smiling like that, right? You see that and you go, that brother belongs in an institution somewhere. If you're friends with me, you're going to unfriend me today, right? Oh, or, and just so you know, I'm not the only one. L- let me give you another one. There's. <laughs> have you seen Facebook Sibi? Facebook Sibby is fierce, right? He belongs on the cover of a magazine somewhere. Let me show you real Sibby. There is something wrong with real Sibby, right? That brother needs help, right? Blessed is the guy on the right, is what Jesus has said. Now hear me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know how hard you and I work to hide who we really are? And how hard we work to make it look like our life is put together? And Jesus comes and says, now you've got a choice. The the choice of being known. Do you know how hard it is to actually be known? Do you know what a scary thought it is? If someone knew the real me, would they still stick around? Would they still love me? Or like me, and and Jesus is saying, but listen, there's another choice as well, a way that's much easier, a way that's much wider. In fact, it's the way most people go, which is you just keep pretending, and you keep hiding, and you never let anyone pass the surface. It's hard, it's narrow, and that's just the first thing he said. You keep going through the sermon. He talks about murder, and then we want to go, okay. At least we don't have to think about that. Except then Jesus goes, you have heard that it was said you shall not murder. But I want you to know God doesn't just have that command to say don't take life. It's not that just God is against murder. He's for life. And so underneath the command do not murder is a massive reality of what God's for. He's not just against murder. He's for life. So let's talk about the life of your relationships. And so then he starts talking about if your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, and go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And you hear that? It's not if you've done something to your brother. You didn't do anything wrong. It's just you're aware that your brother has something against you. You're still to initiate and work for reconciliation. Somebody wrote, you know what that means then, right? That means there's letters to write and text to send and phone calls to make and meetings to schedule, and awkward conversations to have. And all of that is hard. All of that is hard, especially because there's a broad way, an easy way in which many people go, in which you nurse your hurts, and you replay your bitterness and see in HD color all the wrongs that were done to you and you write the person off and they're as good as dead to you which Jesus says is what murder is and Jesus is going to say now choose because there's a way that's broad and easy and wide and many people go it, and there's a way that's narrow and hard and few find it Well, then he starts talking about adultery and again you want to go okay the culture of that day and ours says Jesus is saying don't Be in bed with someone who's not your wife, check, or your husband, check. Except then Jesus narrows this to say, I'm not just against adultery. I'm for purity. I'm for fidelity. I'm for faithfulness. So I'm interested not just even what you do in your body, but what goes on in your heart. And so I care about the gymnastics and the mental amusement park of your brain. And I care what happens there and so he says if you look at a woman with lustful intent you have already committed adultery with her in your heart so what did Jesus say you need to do so then if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away and if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away Jesus is saying you should cut off limbs and gouge out eyes in your fight against sin and said you know what that means then right that means that you're going to have to go to soul care with the, that lump in your throat and that queasy feeling in the pit of your stomach where you are wrestling with whether or not you've got to tell someone your sin. And that's hard. If you've ever been there, you know, you, you know you're, you're wondering if you can even skip soul care for the night so that you don't have to talk about it. But to actually get in that room, to actually look someone in the eye, to sit down with a group of sisters, look them in the eye, and tell them about the relationship you have with that guy and how you've already crossed boundaries you thought you'd never cross is hard. For a man to sit his wife down, swallow hard, and say, I have something to tell you, is hard. It's narrow. It, it takes great cost. And, and then radical steps. He's saying gouge out, tear out, do whatever it takes to get this thing out. And so, so you're going to cancel cable or get rid of the internet. And, and in this day and age, you hear someone say that and you go, you Christians are so narrow. I mean, who in this day and age doesn't have internet? But you're going to radically amputate whatever it takes to rid sin of your life. And all of that is narrow. And all of that is hard especially given the fact that there's a broader way, an easier way, a way in which many people go, a way in which none of this matters. Are you really going to be prosecuted for the invisible thoughts of your brain? Who's that hurting? The argument will go. The broad way which by the time I'm done with this sermon, a new pornographic video will be on the internet because a new one is made every 39 minutes and that you need a new one every 39 minutes because there are 28,258 people who watch porn on the internet every second. There's a way in which many people go where where it doesn't cost you to fight and confess and buy filters and subscribe to accountability software and all the rest. In fact, a, a college professor gave an assignment for a group of students to read the Sermon on the Mount. And these students didn't Christendom in America is over, so they don't have Bible background. So it's not like they had to even, you know, be polite about it. They could just be raw and honest. So they read the Sermon on the Mount. And they don't have church culture like you and I have or Christianese where they had to filter their comments. They just read the Sermon. And listen to some of their reactions. One person said, I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Or another person, talking about the passage on adultery, said this, these things in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I have ever heard. You may not agree, but you have to appreciate his candor which is when you hear the Sermon on the Mount, you're supposed to feel what Jesus just said. This is hard, and it's narrow. And then Jesus starts talking about marriage. And Jesus' understanding of marriage in our day and age would be the most narrow understanding in the world. What it is, it's permanence, In a culture where there's billboards for no-fault, easy divorce, Jesus insists a view of marriage that is so permanent and so flies in the face of everything we hear. Our culture would have you believe. Listen, sometimes marriage doesn't work out. Sometimes you marry the wrong person, right? And and our culture would say to you, uh, you, your true happiness and love is waiting out there somewhere. You just happen to find the wrong person. So go find the right person and be happy because you married the wrong person. Here's what the Bible would say. We all marry the wrong person. We do because you're a sinner and God pairs you up with a sinner. It's never going to be right, right. I'm convinced that a match made in heaven is God finds one sinner and finds the biggest counterpart sinner he can and puts them together and says, now I'm going to work out all the sin in both of you. And if you take that, that this thing is for life, and you work at that, and of course there's sin, and there's grace, and all of it. But if you take that, that means you're going to take marriage very seriously. You're a single person who wants to be married more than anything, and yet you're not going to compromise because this thing is for life. You're a married person. That means that you're going to work hard to face the elephants in the room and to look at the big pile that you've swept under the rug and no one wants to talk about, and you're going to hash it out. You're going to see a counselor like Shainu and I have in nine years of marriage. And I can tell you, it's hard. Hard. Especially because there's a broader way, an easier way, a wider way, which many people go. In fact, the stats would tell us many people, half of the marriages, end in divorce 63% of second marriages end in divorce 70% of third marriages end in divorce there's a broad easy wide way and many people go and some my road that's just three of the things that Jesus was talking about if you keep going through each one what you're going to keep going is this is hard and this is narrow Right, you you tell me what's it like to not go eye for eye or tooth for tooth, to not retaliate blow for blow, to have someone say, You're stupid. When we hear that, I go, I'm stupid. You know, you're stupid, right? But to take an insult, to not seek revenge, but to bless those who persecute you and pray for those who curse you, you know what all that is? It's hard and it's narrow. Or you hear, practice your righteousness not to be seen by others. You know what's much easier than that? It's putting on a performance for everyone to see. That's easy. So you pray, and you pray with a view of everyone who's listening so that you'll be really impressive. You let it slip accidentally that you've donated to such and such. You put on that droopy face when you're fasting so everyone knows how pious you are. That's easy. It's wide, and many people do it. You know what it is to practice piety to go out of your way to make sure no one but God himself knows any good thing you've done that's hard and that's narrow we could keep going you know what's easier than than dealing with the plank in my own eye it's pulling out the speck in yours you know what's much more narrow and hard is having to work on the plank in my eye before I even think about the speck in yours if we kept going, you would say over and over again, that is hard, and that is narrow. And if we said, which part of the Sermon on the Mount is easy, we'd say none. It's all hard, and it's all narrow. So then Samma wrote, here's the question. Then why would we enter by the narrow gate? And there's only one answer, because it's the way that leads to life. That's it because it's the way that leads to life. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is saying to us, as hard and as narrow as it may be, the life that is truly life, in this life and in the life to come, is found under my dominion, and under my rule, and under my reign, and living in my kingdom. And so as hard and narrow as it is, a life marked by living under my rule and reign, under my dominion, in my kingdom, is the life that is life here, and in the life to come. It's life. And how do I know, if you ask me, Ajay, how do you know there's life at the end of this narrow, hard road? I'd say to you, because we're following Jesus. And that's the path he walked, right? When you're a disciple, what are you doing? You're following Jesus. And the path that Jesus Christ walked was the narrow, hard road. That's the path. That's how I know. I know because Jesus took a cross on his back and walked a narrow, hard road. And a blood trail was left behind. But I know that at the end of that road, on the other side is life, is resurrection. Right On the other side of that hard, narrow road is resurrection life. And so that's how we know. And that's the path that Jesus sets for anyone who would follow him. This is why Jesus would say to you like Ernest Shackleton, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And on the other side of that is resurrection life. We choose the way of death and difficulty and hardship because it alone leads to life. I had a counselor who told me that when she comes up to a difficult decision, she's not sure what to do. Often she'll flip a coin in her own mind and say, which feels more like death to me? And chooses that because resurrection's on the other side of that. Which, I want to have this conversation, I don't want to have that conversation. Which feels more like death right now? Is it really having that conversation? Then I'm going to go that way because then the other side of that is resurrection life. And over and over and over again. Jesus is saying, here is the way to life. So here's what I want to say from this landing of the plane as he begins to descend in the Sermon on the Mount. My single friend here at 7 Mile Road, who right now more than anything wants to be married more than anything else and is teetering in that place of compromising. My married friend, who is in that hard marriage and is teetering in that place of pushing the eject button and going, there's a broad, easier way than all of this. I want you to hear, enter by the narrow gate. For the way is hard, but it leads to life. For my friend or my brother or sister who right now is debating whether or not you need to make that phone call and set that relationship right in as much as it depends on you or write that email or schedule that appointment and you're teetering right now whether or not you need to do it, would you let the spirit gust you onto the side that says enter by the narrow gate for the way is hard but it leads to life. For my friend, my brother, my sister, who right now the Spirit is perhaps prodding you about some thing that is growing in the dark that you need to bring into the light, and you're teetering whether or not you're going to live in your real persona or your projected persona. Would you hear Jesus say to you, enter by the narrow gate, for the way is hard, but it leads to life. For my friend, my fellow Christian at Seven Mile Road, who is struggling in his walk with Jesus and isn't even sure if he can make it another step, would you look down and see a blood trail in front of you and see in the distance the shadow of a man with a cross on his back and know you're going exactly the way you should? That's the way Jesus walked. And on the other side of that is resurrection and life. Would you keep going? And for my friend here who this morning is cruising down a 12-lane highway and there's a great breeze in your hair and the sun is shining and music is blaring and there's no traffic and you're going with great comfort and ease, I'm pleading with you, the king of the kingdom is pleading with you, stop, because you're headed for destruction. In fact, turn and enter by the narrow gate. It's hard, but it leads to life. And when I'm inviting you to this morning, Road, Seven what I'm inviting you to is to Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because Christianity is different than everything else in that I'm not calling you to a new just way of life. I'm calling you to a person. You know why? What is the narrow gate of Christianity? Jesus, in John 10, says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Do you hear that? What I'm calling you to is not just a new way of life. I'm calling you to a person. And in Christianity, Jesus is the one who says, I'm the gate that you walk into. What I'm inviting you to is to walk into me. What's the way in Christianity? It's Jesus. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Every other religion will say, this is the way you should walk in it. Jesus will come and say, I am the way, walk in me. I am the life, walk in me. So enter by Jesus and walk in Jesus. It'll be hard, but it's the way to life. So, 7 Mile Road, I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse, good and evil. You choose. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we thank you for inspiring your word and we pray now that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts and that you would draw our eyes to Jesus. We pray that you would even now arrest us down a path to destruction and turn us around, that we would actually repent, turn around and come to Jesus, that we would enter by Jesus and walk in the way of Jesus who is the gate and who is the way and that we would find that it leads to life. We pray for every saint, wherever they are, sprinting in this season, crawling in this season, that they would look on the ground and see a bloody trail in front of them, the way of Jesus, see their Savior, and hear him again say, if anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. And we pray that you would lead many of us, all of us, to today that we might have life. Come and minister to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.